0: We've got one or two people coming in, so we might wait another minute. <coughs> All right. Well, the, croc- the clock has struck. <laughs> i Welcome to the National Library of Australia. Um, I'm Dr. Martin Woods. I'm um, the curator of maps here at the National Library and uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you to tonight's fellowships presentation and to introduce you to our guest speaker, Professor Lisa Adkins. As we begin, I acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose land we meet and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples. Professor Lisa Adkins is the 2018 National Library of Australia Fellow, supported by library patrons and supporters. This is a fellowship of 12 weeks of deep archival research, which Lisa has used to underpin her investigation into the conditions of work and working in the Great Depression era. Professor, Professor Adkins is head of the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Sydney, where her home department is Sociology and Social Policy. She is also an Academy of Finland Distinguished Professor and has previously held chairs in sociology at the University of Manchester and at Goldsmiths University of London. Lisa has also served as a member of the Australian Research Council's College of Experts and before her recent move to Sydney was a professor of sociology at the University of Newcastle. Lisa's contributions in the discipline of sociology lie in the areas of economic sociology, social theory and feminist theory. Her recent research has focused on the restructuring of labour, money and time in the context of growth of finance and Stanford has just published her new book, The Time of Money, a gripping story about money and our increasingly financialised lives. Perhaps in contrast, Lisa's fellowship with the National Library has gone to the condition of unemployment and wageless life. This, has worked, this work has been supported by the Australian Research Council, the Academy of Finland, and the National Library of Australia. Lisa has used a fellowship to gather data on the conditions of work and working in the Great Depression era, against which, which to test the claim that present-day working conditions are in some way analogous to those experienced during the severe economic downturn of the 1930s. Here at the library, Lisa has worked with oral histories and manuscripts collected by Wendy Lowenstein to develop a rich database of human experiences of work, working and wagelessness in 1930s Australia and much more. Wendy's interviews provide a first-hand account of life during the Depression, consisting of interviews with people from all sections of the community, including those who made it, as well as those adversely affected. And some of you will know Selected interviews were later published in her book, Weevils in the Flower. The Lowenstein manuscript and oral history collections continue to provide valuable source material to researchers and writers. In this case, Lisa's research has looked especially, though not exclusively, on the experiences of women in order to generate data through which the Great Depression era and the present day may be compared. Please join me in welcoming Professor Lisa Adkins.
1: Thank you so much, Martin, for such a lovely introduction. And um, before I begin, um, I'd like to thank the library for supporting me to do this research, and especially thank um, the sponsors of the fellowship. And I'd also like to especially thank um, James Warner and Michael Mullins, who've helped me prepare for today's presentation, um, especially in the preparation of the sound files that I'm going to use. So, as Martin's um, laid out, um, I've become, or I did become, rather, um, drawn to a particular claim um, that c- circulated in the, in, in, the, in the current era, especially post the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008. This is the claim that somehow our current conditions are somehow analogous to the Great Depression era. And if you read kind of popular commentary and academic work, especially the work of economists, you'll find that that claim repeated. So, for instance, you find it in the work of the economist Paul Krugman, whose work you might have read, and also the economist Mark Blythe, who's done some really amazing work on austerity. But the claim that circulated isn't simply that what our current, our current day conditions and those of the Great Depression share in common is a background of financial crisis. In other words, it's not simply an argument that a big crisis disturbed our ways of life and ways of being. But rather, it's an argument that the relations between capital and labor, alongside a fundamental reorganization of of the state, have taken place such that our current conditions share certain features in common with those of the 1930s. Now, as I'll go on to talk about, this claim actually largely exists as, as an assertion with little or no reference to empirical evidence. So to be able to think about this claim, I think, or even to assess its its relevance, we need two things. We need to know about the present, and we also need to know about the 1930s. So let me start with the present. So what do we know about work in our current moments, and especially in Australia? So work, as we know, has become increasingly precarious, insecure, and contingent. And that's especially so when we compare those conditions with the post-World War II period or the Keynesian era. Um, In Australia, as as many of you will know, um, as for many of its counterparts, the Keynesian era, the post-World War II era, was an era in which there was a settlement or a compact between capital, labour, and the state, um, which created relatively stable employment and wages for particular sections of the population, and especially for male workers. The Keynesian era was also an era in which um, the model of economic growth, was tied to that employment. In other words, it was tied to men's employment, women's dependency on those men, and the heteronormative household. From the 1970s onwards, um, that that model began to be wound down. And and one of its kind of key organising mechanisms, the, the family wage, was slowly unravelled, and in its place um, a model of economic growth was installed based on competitiveness and the incorporation of the whole population, including women, especially women actually, into the wage labor imperative. So there was a kind of optimization of work and working capacities of the whole population in this new model of growth. So, from the late 70s onwards, we slowly see, for instance, the embrace of, an, uh, of a model of the family, um, uh, in which, which wasn't kind of modelled on a male breadwinner uh, and, and women's dependency on that breadwinner, but rather on a family in which all adults were working. So, we see increasingly from the 80s onwards and through the 90s, and a policy emphasis on working families. Now, that the model of growth that, were, that replaced um, the Keynesian model of growth is also associated with the un- unwinding of um, national wage-setting agreements and, in their place... Um, uh, the putting in place of l- local enterprise agreements. Um, it's also associated with the growth of chronic underemployment. So, one of the things that characterizes um, the Austra- Australian labor market today um, is, is, is kind of huge underemployment rather than kind of straightforward unemployment. We've also seen the institutionalisation via various means, including legal, of, of precarious forms of work, and critically declining income shares for labour um, in the context of rising productivity. So, even though labor's productivity has gone up, um, the income that labour sees back from that um, productivity is declining. And That declining income share has also taken place in the context of what Thomas Piketty, the economist, has termed the return of wealth. So an increasing share of income is flowing to owners of capital. So the model of economic growth that's replaced the Keynesian model then um, is then associated with with a new contract, if you like, between capital and labour where the balance of power lies with capital, where it clearly lies with capital. So the certainties which were previously associated with with wage labour, for instance wage rates, working hours, terms of employment, have generally been transformed into uncertainties. And it's also important to stress that our current period has, has, shown, has seen a kind of huge transformation of the state. So there's been a move away from a state that's concerned with protecting its populations, its population in times of need, through, for instance, the provision of benefits, um, to one that's concerned with activating the working capacities of populations. So unemployment, I think, is an important case in point here. Um, In uh, the Second World War period, uh, post-Second World War period, Australia introduced a flat rate of of payment for the unemployed and for those temporarily incapacitated for work because, for instance, of sickness or accidents. Now, this was certainly not universal. so the entitlement to such benefits was, for example, denied um, to married women on the grounds of their economic dependency of men. But nonetheless, um, you can see this kind of model of, of the idea of protection working through a kind of breadwinner dependency, dependent model. There were exemptions in that model um, for, for wives, for instance, if they could demonstrate that it was not really reasonably possible for their husbands to maintain them. But since the 1980s onwards, um, albeit unevenly, um, the Australian state started to take up employment and unemployment policies um, which were aimed at securing employability and competitiveness. So it's, the state has progressively disengaged from the idea that populations are entitled to unemployment employment benefits as a social right, um, and located benefits as conditional on participation in work and work-like activities, and extended that conditionality um, to the whole population. And, That that participation in work and work like activities has generally been located in terms of the need to enhance employability, that is, to secure or intensify competitiveness. And we can see this especially in the workfare or welfare to work policies, as they're sometimes called. Um, that have been rolled out from the 1990s onwards um, in Australia. And Australia was very much at the kind of forefront of rolling out these these workfare policies um, and was often seen as a model um, worldwide as being almost the frontier um, nation in terms of of these policies. So workfare policies um, essentially... Um, enact regimes of conditionality um, where that conditionality coheres around work and working. So work for the dole and so on. And um, what these policies do is not only make welfare conditional on working activities, but they tend to economize the unemployed. So in other words, um, they kind of calibrates unemployed populations and underemployed underemployed populations in terms of kind of economic worthiness, as it were. So in Australia, for instance, at the moment, there's an instrument called the Job Seekers Classification Instrument, which places the unemployed along a scale of employability. So you kind of get ranked in terms of how employable you are. And more recently, still, Um, we've seen the rollout of even more kind of forms of conditionality, including conditionalities, um, including, for instance, uh, sorry, including further benefit cuts. So it's a kind of national scandal that Newstart, the Newstart allowance is actually below the poverty line. So generally what we can see is this shift from the protection of populations to the increasing optimization and activation of lives. so And there's this overriding logic um, of attempting to activate the unemployed, to optimize li- life through work and working. And we can also see this um, process, if you like, of economization through other kinds of slow policy policy shifts that are taking place not just in Australia, but also elsewhere. So, for instance, there's extension to state pension ages, so in other words, you have to be progressively older and older to get access um, to state pensions. Um, There's a gradual stripping away of other kinds of of state benefits, and slowly um, there's been an abolishment of default retirement ages. So what we can see in all of those kinds of developments is this extension and expansion of work and working. So, you know, it's clear at the moment that a a clear life phase called retirement is kind of being undermined um, in certain ways. So increasingly we're expected to work as long as we possibly can. So there's an optimization of work and working across whole lifetimes. And that's true, as true, I would argue, um, for those in work as it is for those out of work. So it's as true for the jobless as it is for the employed. So it's these kinds of transformations, and obviously I've had to gloss over them really, really quickly, to work and working lives um, alongside this kind of hollowing out of the the protection arm of of the state and the protection of populations by the state that have prompted these analogies to be drawn between the conditions of the present and those of the Great Depression era. In other words, they've prompted parallels um, between the present and the very era, paradoxically, that underscored the necessity for state intervention in the protection of populations. And in and through which John Maynard Keynes developed his foundational thinking on aggregate demand and the role of the state in sustaining such demand. So there's, a, there's this kind of really interesting paradox at the, at the heart of these analogies. So as I said right at the start, the parallels that have been drawn then are not simply rooted in a kind of empiricist observation that the present and the Great Depression era both share in common a background of financial crisis. But they derive instead from the observation that the recalibrations of the relations between relations of power between capital and labor, together with this fundamental reorganization of the state, um, is opening out conditions similar to those, structural conditions if you like, similar to those of the 30s. Now, I think that it's a really powerful analogy. There's a kind of effective dimension to it, you know, when people kind of say, wow, this is... When Krugman, after the, right after the financial crisis in the States, said, oh, my goodness, we haven't seen anything like this since the Great Depression, um, people, it, it kind of made people sit up and think. So it's incredibly alluring. But nonetheless, I think it remains ill-defined in many ways. And what's missing is any kind of empirical verifications, verification that the experiences of today, and especially those relating to work, working, and, and wagelessness, are somehow similar in texture and form to those of the 1930s. And I became very interested in thinking about, well, if we, if we were looking for this kind of elusive empirical evidence, what would that material look like? Um, What kind of data would allow the conditions of work, working and wagelessness in the Great Depression era and those um, of the present to be compared? What kind of data would we need? And it was in that context um, that I I was drawn to the Wendy Lernstein collection which is held here at the NLA. As Martin's already pointed out, this is an extensive collection comprising recorded oral histories, transcripts, and also associated manuscripts relating to a number of the oral histories carried out by Wendy Lernstein, who, of course, was a pioneering oral oral historian. And as part of this collection, um, the materials associated with Loewenstein's Weevils in the Flower um, Project are held. Now, these are oral history recordings that comprises, that project comprises oral history interview recordings, transcripts, and other materials, such as photographs and letters. And the project focused exclusively on life um, in the Great Depression, um, on life in the Great Depression in Australia. And the interviews were carried out by Leonstein herself in the 1970s. And they are incredi- the, the interviews are incredibly fastidious in detail. And they chart the conditions of life during the Great Depression, especially, and with a special focus on the conditions of work, working, unemployment, intermittent employment, and wagelessness. So, in a sense, the collection was the the, the collection was perfect, held the perfect kind of data that I was looking for. Having said that, I should say that I'm a sociologist and not an oral historian. So. Um, I approached the collection with some trepidation because I think sociologists and oral historians approach data slightly differently, and that's something maybe we can talk about afterwards. Um, So um, the oral historian presents data with a whole person, you know, the the interview is is the history, whereas sociologists do, I guess, what is a terrible thing of cutting data up uh, (laughs) um, and thinking about themes and so on. so, I did approach it with some trepidation. Um, and, but as Martin said, um, I initially started to read um, the extracts from the interviews that were published by Lernstein in Weevils in the Flower in 1978. But the collection actually contains far more material um, than appears in the book. And in fact, I realized during, during, as I worked my way through the fellowship, that the book only contains a tiny amount of um, uh, the material um, held um, in the collection. Um, In the book, uh, actually, Loewenstein described her Depression-era project as a grassroots history. And for me, that's where its value lies. Um, The interviews are really a unique resource offering first-hand accounts of life in and out of work in the Great Depression. So I mean, I think their value is immense, and not just to oral historians. And I hope that as part of my engagement with the collection, I'll kind of open out its value to sociologists. What's um, remarkable about the collection as well is that Loewenstein included um, participants um, from a range of backgrounds, an enormous range of class backgrounds. Um, So when we, I think, tend to think of the Great Depression, we tend to think about We tend to kind of think of those kind of iconic images that we've all seen of people being very, very destitute. Um, And we tend to think about people who are probably working class and lose their jobs and then slip into homelessness um, and um, had to be incredibly inventive around how they lived. And what is remarkable, I think, about the collection is as I said, this kind of cross-section of the population that Lernstein interviewed from a range of class backgrounds, um, from kind of the working class to the upper class. And those people that she interviewed from came from a range of locations as well um, in Australia, from Tasmania to, to North Queensland. She also, and um, this is really important, for me, um, as a sociologist um, included as many women as she did men, I think roughly. Um, I tried to do a count, and I think it, it was it was it 's roughly equal so during the fellowship period um, at the library, I engaged with this remarkable collection, and I actually transcribed um, a number of the oral history interviews, and set about creating a database, um, which oral historians probably wouldn't do, um, around three themes, so wages, the conditions of wagelessness and unemployment, and the conditions of work and working. So uh, tonight I'm just going to concentrate on the first two, Um, and it's worth repeating that there's so much data Um, in the collection, that um, I'm only just going to give you a a kind of sense of of what's what's in there. Um, And it's also also worth saying um, um, that during the Great Depression era in Australia, unemployment um, peaked in 1932 at, at a rate of 30%, which is extraordinary when you think about it. So let me begin then with thinking about wages. So, as I was reading and listening to these remarkable interviews, um, certain themes emerged around wages, and the two that stood out to me most was, uh, were the unpredictability associated with wages during the Great Depression, and also the downwards pressure that was being applied on wages. So, just to give you a sense of that, so. Um, in terms of the un- unpredictable wages, so one woman interviewed described how in the early part of the Depression her husband had worked on the wharves, and how that work and wages were both r- incredibly intermittent and un- unpredictable. She described how her husband would get up incredibly early in the morning and run down to the walls in the hope of work and would get in a queue... Um, desperately hoping that he would be given some work. And work was literally allocated on a day-by-day basis. Um, That same woman also described how, during the Great Depression era, for those who did manage to get work work on the walls, there was an intensification of work. Um, So there were increased working hours for the same pay. She also described how when there was no wolf work, her husband tried to get odd jobs, but these, she said, paid incredibly little. People, she said, took advantage, and this is a quote from her, to to get their work done cheaply because because of the unemployment around. So I think there's an interesting intersection there between the unpredictability of work and the downwards pressure um, on wages. So to give you some more more sense of this downward pressure on wages, um, one incredibly interesting woman uh, was interviewed by Lowenstein, who was incredibly middle class. She lived in Sydney, and she had a really good job in the Commonwealth Bank um, across the Depression Um, era from 1927 onwards. And her work involved um, working on the ledger keeping machine. Her father, by the way, was a music teacher and was one of the founders of the Music Association in Sydney she described how she got her job, which is a really interesting story as well. So she said there were 400 people on a waiting list for employment um, in the bank, and and how she had in fact jumped the queue through family connections um, with the Commonwealth Bank. She made clear um, that that list, list with 400 people um, waiting on it, was just the women and that there was a much, much longer list for men. They, she said, by which she meant the bank, were very choosy. But she also went on to describe, she has this really fascinating kind of almost like a work life history um, to describe how in 1930 all of the wages and salaries um, were in the bank were cut by 10%. So. So, what, we, what's so what I found so fascinating about this particular interview is that it gave a sense um, of how even those in, in kind of s- safe middle-class jobs were subject to this kind of downwards pressure on wages. Um, to give another example, another woman who was interviewed um, by Lowenstein Lowenstein, sorry, described how during the depression, her eldest son had a job in an orchard and lived away from home. He had incredibly low wages. It was 10 shillings and keep. Um, But um, the orchard owner cut, um, cut her son's wages in half. And he then went back to the family home. So there was this really interesting um, theme actually throughout a number of the interviews, um, which kind of illustrated just how significant family and kinship were for survival during the great during the era so family and kinship were critical um, for for people um, just being able to kind of get through day to day Another uh, example of wage, r- wage downward pressure on wages came from uh, a woman who was a teacher in a small country town in Victoria. She described how after 1932, all teachers' wages were reduced by 10% or more, perhaps even up to 20%. She, in fact, was the main breadwinner for, for the family. Her father was unemployed, um, her mother was dead, Her younger sister was working in a grocery shop uh, where where she was underpaid, and this this breadwinner role for for women really stood out for me in the the interviews. It was repeated across a number of interviews, and I'll return to that later on. The downwards pressure on wages was so um, strong um, in certain cases that many people were not earning enough uh, enough to live. Being in work didn't necessarily make you any better off during this period. And so one woman, for instance, was earning three shillings a week, but her fares to get her to work were five shillings a week. So work wasn't paying. And I think that's something that's, there's there's definitely a parallel here with the present, because that's one of the characteristics of the present, that we don't earn enough to live. Most of us have got huge debt. And uh, one of the things that's talked about constantly in in social policy circles is um, the phenomenon of in-work poverty. So I think there is a connection there. Some workers as well were not paid their wages, and that was a common theme across the interviews as well. So one man who was interviewed, for example, got a job on a farm, um, and it was for general farm work. Uh, for one pound a week, plus keep. Um, but he was never paid. He was there for four months. And he made money on the side by catching, training, and sewing, get this, wild horses. <laughs> so there was this huge inventiveness around survival during the Great Depression as well. A tactic that... Um, A a tactic that many employers used was to kind of offer workers um, in-kind payments. So um, one man interviewed, for for example, did gardening work in exchange for food, did cement work for a company in exchange for food, um, and women, um, especially single women, um, worked as live-ins or domestic workers Where their extremely low wages were compensated by board and food. So, I want to move on now to think about the conditions of wagelessness and unemployment. One of the re- remarkable things about the Lohenstein collections, collection is it has these incredible stories of, be, of men, and it was all men, being on the track. In other words, what, what was termed being on the track. That is men who traveled around, mostly by train, but also sometimes by foot, um, in the hope of finding work, and at times receiving track rations. In other words, food relief for those traveling in search of employment. And that scheme was it put in place in 1932. So in other words, what the Lowenstein collection contains, um, the weevils in, in, in the flower collection contains, are these? is this incredible set of stories about itinerant workers who moved around the countryside. And Those stories are of incredibly dangerous journeys with men often getting injured, jumping on and off trains, and also of travelling great distances. They're also stories of living off the land and sometimes finding odd odd jobs or very temporary forms of employment for a few, few days or maybe for a week. One interviewee, for instance, traveled from Tasmania to Queensland and back again in, in um, search of work. And he describes his journey and how he lived in great detail, and especially how he kept on moving. And I'm going to play you um, a section of a short section of his interview, um, in which how he describes um, getting to Brisbane.
2: Well, of course, mine, you know, they were getting, you know, they were getting the labour to cheap for a couple of loaves of bread or four loaves of bread. They were only about 10th oh, yeah. or something. Oh, no, Fortin's. Fortin's. Fortin's a mm-hmm. we'll if I remember, Fortin's for, for, for eight he went up to so. Fortin's. <laughs> I
1: see,
2: well. Well, only, uh, we got we got through uh, the cities with us and we got, mm-hmm. went into Brisbane and mm-hmm. then, no, it's very hard in the city, you know, you start to feel, Depressed, you feel that you're, you know, one of the army of the unwanted. And no one wants you in the city. And It's best that you can live better out in the bush, because, well, as I say, you can always get a rabbit. You can always get a bit. Although one time we couldn't. We shot a poor old magpie. Terrible thing, but we ate it. You never got any, 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 any repercussions from that sheep you killed? No, no, never any more about it, no. And uh, never, never, I should have got any replication knocking over a magpie, but.
1: So what interests me there, and I'm sure you picked up on it, was the, the um, his phrase, "You feel like you're one, one of the army of the unwanted." Um, so, and that no, he, he felt that no one wants you in the city. So here, I think there's this um, kind of clear reference, in sociological terms, to a kind of reserve army of labour that's moving around the countryside, trying to get work. And um, in, in another interview, um, someone mentioned actually that Queensland had at the time a population of half a million people and it was supporting a travelling population of over a million workers or would-be workers. What was really interesting and striking about these tales of being on the track is that they're tales of suffering, but you could probably hear it in, in the interview um, in the inter- interview extract there, but also tales of adventure. There's a kind of heroic narrative of survival um, within uh, those the interviews uh, with with men who have been on the track, and um, <laughs> Oops. Oops. sorry, what happened there? Um, and it was. Um, only men who went on the track, um, and it was only men during this period who, um, mostly only men, sorry, who received any kind of welfare or benefit payments or benefit payments in kind, which I'll go on to talk about in a moment. And there was one woman interviewed, sorry, who talked about living in um, country Victoria and how it was incredibly depressing because she said all all of the boys had gone on the track So, um, and she went on to describe how most of the the women who were kind of, as it were, left behind in this small town um, were kind of doing incredibly low-paid forms of work, including um, typing work. So she talks about the the Great Depression as being depressing. The other, um, another... Another um, really interesting um, element of the interviews when, when thinking about unemployment and worklessness um, was that, that were the work for the dole schemes that were in operation during um, this time. And again, they were for men, and men were working for the dole on public infrastructure projects, big, often big public infrastructure pro- projects, including, including roads. So one woman, for example, described how her husband was working on the dole for the council. He worked on the roads. And another described how her husband worked on the dole in in, in local gardens. Another, uh, a man actually described how there was mass enrolment of men into these schemes. So he described a scene in Footscray in in 1930 where work was offered to 750 men en masse Um, who wanted to work in return for the dole. So he describes six shillings of welfare for a single man, 12 for a man man and wife, and two and six for each child, Um, and how that work was unavailable to men who were living with their parents. So I'm just going to replay you um, part of an interview here where um, a woman describes dole payments as well. Well,
2: you see, at that time we, we were on the dole Mm. and we weren't allowed to earn any more than two pounds a week the whole family if we yeah. if we earned more than two pounds well you lost well. the dog that's for a family of seven children mm. golly now how long were you on Or well, when did your husband finally go on to the dog well been- he was doing these odd jobs yeah. for quite yeah, a, a while and then uh, it was when we lived on quinces for a month yes. yes tell me about that well the man who
1: The important part in there for me um, was conditionality. So the conditionality is operating. So once you started to earn over two pounds, that was it. You couldn't, a whole family earned over two pounds. The family could not get access to the dole anymore. So we often think about when we kind of read literature on the current welfare state and how it's restructured. Conditionality um, and working for the dole are the th- things that we associate with the current period. But there were clear conditionalities operating in regard to, to welfare and especially access to the dole in the Great Depression era. The last um, example of, um, in, in regard to um, unemployment and worklessness that I want to talk about is um, welfare payments in kind. And, and especially the operation of sustenance relief, um, which operated for men um, and their dependents. Again, it was accessed ac- access by men. This was a, at sustenance was a system of food vouchers that was introduced in the Depression. It was state-based, so it varied slightly by state. The, the schemes varied a lot, um, and they, they were for those without assets or savings. Interestingly, some people um, did have savings during the Great Depression. They couldn't access them because the banks had kind of cut off access to savings. So that, but because they had savings, they couldn't get access to sustenance. So that people were in this kind of terrible double bind. So now what I find interesting about the system of food vouchers is, of course, the parallels with our present-day cashless welfare card. Um, which is used in a similar way, and there are incredibly incredible stories in the Loewenstein collection of, 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 of people simply surviving on the vouchers, the sustenance vouchers. So, one woman described in great detail, for instance, how she would go to the sustenance office and get food supplies, as well as other items such as secondhand clothing. So Stepping back um, from from all of that, there was this really, in terms of the kind of gender order of what was going on with wages, employment, worklessness, and welfare, there was one woman interviewed who had this incredible phrase, girls were both lucky and unlucky. And what she went on to describe she, she kind of t- tried to unpack what she meant by that. So she said, women were unlucky because they couldn't get the doll. But, so, but paradoxis- paradoxically, women's labor and wages was actually critical for household survival. So one, to give an example of that, um, uh, one man, looking back on the Great Depression era, told the story of his wife who worked in a factory. Um, when she turned 21, he said she was earning 2 pounds and five shillings a week. That meant that her father, because it was over the £2 threshold, couldn't get the dole and that there was family friction. He, uh, he also talked about how wom- women couldn't get married or move out of the family home because the family was completely dependent on them. So there was this incredible... set of paradoxes going on around women's labour. So women were both defined as dependents and yet were were the main breadwinners. So I think there was this really interesting um, dynamic going on um, in terms of gender during this period. But generally, I think we also need to... um, Acknowledge, and I think I, I kind of got a real sense of this going through the um, interviews, that welfare for the out-of-work w- was not coordinated terribly well during, um, during the Depression era. Many of the welfare measures were actually emergency measures um, that, kind, that's, that uh, states had rolled out, and some of them were very chaotically administered But they were also, um, those measures themselves were also precarious and unpredictable. So people could be suddenly cut off from the dole without warning. Um, And then would retrospectively have a kind of reason presented to them as to why they'd been cut off the dole. So for instance, Someone said, as a man who was interviewed was told by an official that the the particular scheme that he was enrolled on to get the dole was only meant to give them a start and not to kind of last uh, month on month. Um, Some interviewees as well also talked about how they were warned not to be rude to officials um, in benefits offices. So one official would advise that a woman's husband, for instance, be taken off sustenance after a visit to their home and she'd happened to she happened to see what that official wrote in the in the ledger and he'd written and this is a quote in my opinion this man does not want to work and should be taken off sustenance so there was this kind of precarity associated with with welfare you couldn't take it for granted you had to do a lot of work to manage it and to make sure that you had access to it. And also, um, men could be taken off the dole and sustenance for refusing to work. So here we see conditionality operating again. So in conclusion, um, I think clearly um, work, worklessness and unemployment um, in the Great Depression era in Australia was by no means a unified experience. And if we return to that kind of question or issue that I became drawn to and what drew me to the Lowenstein collection, that is, are there kind of similarities um, between the now and the Great Depression era? I can, I think we can say there are certain similarities, precarity, welfare conditionalities, downwards pressure on wages, and so on, but also there are critical differences. Not least, I've tried to highlight the the key differences in terms of, of gender in this talk. What I think we can say most definitively though, in terms of those differences, is the Great Depression actually led to a coordinated political action Um, which was aimed at protecting populations and also aimed to curb inequalities of wealth via strategies of redistribution. So we saw welfare states develop. In our present day, we almost see the opposite. The protection of populations is being undone in the context of the return of wealth inequalities. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much, Lisa, and uh, I think we can all think about um, examples of conditionalities and downward pressures in our own lives and times that um, perhaps Wendy's recordings and Lisa's research start to bring to the fore and and to the forefront of our thinking. Um, I can think of a few. Um, I don't know whether they even are correct ones to think about but one of them I thought of because I'd done some research into the rise of the Women's Ag Bureau's and Country Women's Association Mm in the 1920s and 30s and to me that seemed to be something that's comparable with what's been happening recently but very qualitatively different in what they're attempting to achieve. Um, And another one was the The conditionality of the sale of assets before you are uh, um, eligible for the doll which was the case in many jurisdictions you had to sell certain of your assets before you could demonstrate your eligibility for the doll and of course that doesn't happen quite so much now but then we're subject to massive credit um um intrusions um, ourselves to maintain standard of living etc and the rise of um cheap credit or quick credit Um, i wonder if you had some comment on either of those
1: yeah, I mean, I think the I think the credit thing is really interesting. Um, partly because I've just done a whole load of work on money and finance. Um, one of the critical qualitative differences between now and the Great Depression era is that in our in our lives, everyone, I would argue, um, is connected to finance in profound ways, um, um, in ways that were unimaginable during the Great Depression era. Um, So um, of course there was a financial crisis um, prior to um, which kicked off the great great depression, Um, but that kicked in um, a depression um, where which was all about kind of businesses drying up, the kind of um, the kind of the kind of situation that we have now is is that finance and banks are actually completely dependent on us, not just businesses, participating in finance in our everyday lives. So paying our mortgages, paying our bills on time, um, all those kinds of things, and politically, there is a lot of action that's done to make sure that we all do that. Um, So payments on time are critical. Yeah, I agree, that's one of the key, key qualitative differences in terms of our lives. Mm
0: Can we have some questions from the floor and uh, Lisa will bring the microphone to you. There's one in the middle there, Lisa.
1: Thank you. Um, What do you think are the silences in the Lowenstein collection? What voices are you not hearing? Yeah, that's a really interesting... It's a really interesting question. There's hardly... There's very little discussion of indigenous Australians. There's some, but not much. Um, So uh, that's, I would say, is the key set of voices that's not present. Um, However, I think, um, as I said, it's a remarkable collection, and um, the voices are so varied. So, you know, there's um, unionists, there's business owners, um, there's someone who formed the Unemployment Workers' Union. Um, so, I would say that, actually, the collection as it stands is remarkable for it in its diversity.
0: Thanks for a great presentation. I'm interested in uh, the sort of uh, historical moments of the 1930s when all this was happening, the 1970s when the interviews were happening, and then the moment now GFC, -GFC, post-GFC, and the historical events before that, the relationship with war, and uh, the economy and the relationship of the citizen to the state. And I think each of those three historical moments are different in those, uh-huh. uh, in those uh, dimensions. So I just wonder if you have any observations, particularly about the interviews being conducted in the 70s know, okay. about yeah. the 30s?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's actually something that I think you've put your finger on something there, which is um, a methodological difference between sociologists and oral historians. Um, and oral historians in the room, please um, join in this conversation, um, especially if you think what I'm about to say kind of mis- doesn't, doesn't do you justice. But from, from where I sit in as, as a sociologist, all historians um, are asking people about their memories, right, of, of the past, and um, whereas sociologists, when they do interviews, they tend to be about the now. So sociologists, well, if they did, you know, they, I'm not, sociologists tend to do that, sociologists sometimes do kind of historical style interviews, but mostly they're about the now. Um, and. I know there's a huge methodological debate in oral history about memory. Um, And obviously, memory memory and what we remember and how we remember and why we remember things is caught up in those historical periodizations that you've highlighted. So the question is, the critical question is, have these specific kinds of memories been structured by the fact that they were being uttered in the 1970s, I think is your question. And I suspect, yes, that's right. I think that that is right. But for me, what was really interesting as well is, um, in a way, um, those, some of the interviewees were contrasting their life then in the 70s to what it was in in the Great Depression era. So that they were themselves performing historicization. Um, and and it was it was quite compelling in that sense. So they would talk about you know how their lives now and how you know you could the kind of state benefits were much more predictable. Um, easier to manage, and that kind of no one faced these kinds of conditions. And I and I think the fact that it was the 70s, during that kind of rollout of um, uh, the kind of Keynesian growth model, um, a state that wanted to protect its population, that stood out for them. That's what stood out for them. And you're right, that would make a really interesting further paper around those comparisons that the interviewees were themselves making. I mean, I performed my own historicisation, but it wasn't their one. Yeah. I hope that answers your question. Yeah.
2: Hi.
0: I just wanted to ask you about the idea of absolute
2: and relative poverty, because um, you would think that people in the depression would be much closer to absolute poverty than people today, and that our, you know, we're in such a consumerist society now that
0: people today are very long way from the depths of
1: deprivation that you might find during the
0: depression. Yeah, I wasn't.
1: I wasn't trying to say that people's the the the. Poverty levels were at the same level. Um, I wasn't implying that at all. Um, But what I do think, what what I think is really interesting about today, now in Australia, um, is that poverty is making a comeback in quite extreme ways. Um, Just as wealth is making uh, its comeback. So, I mean, I wouldn't, I was more interested, so I didn't want to go through that kind of route because I think you get in trouble when you start to make that kind of argument. As, as I try to make clear right at the start, what I'm interested in is the idea that the structural conditions, so the relationship between capital and labour had, shift, had shifted to such an extent um, that you know in the 1930s that actually um, um, there wasn't a welfare state. And today, the welfare state is being rolled back, right? So, you know, there are, I was, I'm much more interested in those structural conditions and how those structural conditions um, kind of resonate through people's lives.
0: One question at the back there, we have time for. Uh, Thank you for a very interesting
2: talk, Um, I think uh, my question Uh, you've touched a little bit upon it, but I just wanted to ask whether you would be uh, thinking of doing some research into conditions of work in the kind of pre-Keynesian era prior to or in the absence of the Great Depression, because of course the conditions of work which you have described, as indeed the conditions of work today, are not sort of caused exclusively or solely by the fact that we've had a depression, but rather these conditions emerged, certainly in the, in the case of today, with the decline of the welfare state uh, since the 70s, yep. with the, uh, and that, of course, is a period during which we had extraordinary economic growth, real or one might sort of be contemptuous of this economic growth, but nonetheless there was yep. growth and uh, at least upfront prosperity. So my question is, um, isn't it just really, I suppose it comes to this, isn't it a bit misleading to make the contrast between today and times of the Great Depression, when it, in fact the contrast is more um, uh, conditions of work today as opposed to conditions of work in this pre-Keynesian era, this what the French call, prior to what the French call uh, <laughs> the, thir- the glorious 30 from 45 yeah. to 75.
1: Yeah, I, complete, I completely agree, of course. I completely agree. Um, um, I don't think in any way that the conditions of today have been caused by the global financial crisis. That, that pro, those processes started in the 70s. Um, um, I completely agree, as I said, but as I said right at the start, um, a whole range of economists were, were making that comparison, right? And what I'm trying to say is um, actually, that, that actually there really isn't that straightforward comparison. It's much more complicated than that. Um, so I agree with you. Yeah.
0: Look, I'm sorry to say we, we are up. Our hours past, And um, we do have time upstairs to, um, to talk. So pl- please join me in, in thanking Lisa for her wonderful presentation. <clears throat> Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. Wonderful. And um, before we uh, continue the conversation in a few minutes upstairs with some refreshments, I'd just like to um, commend to you our next fellowship lecture, which will be held next Thursday, the 29th of November at 6pm. This will be the National Folk Federation um, 2018 presentation by Salvatore Rossano, presenting SONU, a project exploring the themes of migration using field recordings, and on Thursday, 6th of December. Please join us to hear Dr Maggie Tonkin. Thank you very much.